Welcome to Miyagi Mornings Weekly Recap, a podcast version of our daily video series, Miyagi Mornings. Links to the video version of each segment can be found in the show notes for this episode. These recap episodes are a part of the Survival Podcast feed, but are numbered independently as a special weekly edition of our show in all podcast feeds. How's revenge? Daniel-san, you look revenge that way. Start by digging to a grave. Walk right side, safe. Walk left side, safe. Walk middle, sooner or later, get the squish just like grape. Well, hello there, folks, and welcome to another edition of Miyagi Mornings. This is episode 121, I believe, of, this, of uh, Miyagi Mornings. And uh, we're going to talk about float today and some cool stuff coming from there. I just did a great interview last week with Kingsley Edwards, but I know not everybody that watches my videos is going to sit and listen to an hour, 20-minute podcast. So I want to give you like these like couple bullet points, like it's like six or seven bullet points, of really cool new features coming to float uh, with their official launch, because they've been in beta uh, for like the last year and a half, and what's coming is so far beyond what they have. And I want to use that to talk about free speech today a little bit and how important it is in our, in, in our, our, our world today. But I want to throw out here at the beginning also another thank you to John Willis over at SOE Tactical Gear. And uh, it's one of my favorite shirts by him. And if you're listening to the podcast version, you probably can't see it, but it says, Do the Work. I've always loved this shirt. I have another new shirt he just sent me. Pretty badass. And I don't know if he's borrowing on one of my old designs, but he's got a hoe and a rifle there with the combat cock. And that, to me, that's Guns and Gardens. Um, but the reason I'm not wearing it is because this one's actually really badass on the back. And you guys won't see it. But... Um, It says, you know, welcome to my new normal. And it's like guns and canning supplies and tractors and shovels and basically guns, gardens, prepping. That's my new normal. This is an awesome shirt. I have links to both these shirts in the video notes. Anyway, let's start talking about this. So, like I said, I had Kingsley on. And I've always liked Float, but I've never really had any kind of a direct relationship with the Float team up until very recently. So I didn't really know what was coming. And I've always kind of seen Float like, okay, it's kind of cool. It's like a Twitter clone, you know, and it is what it is. It's going to be so much more than that. That was basically float beta, and they're coming out of beta probably early to mid-August. And here's just some of the things that's getting added to the float platform. Um, they're going to have their own native token called float token. It's going to follow the emission schedule of Bitcoin, so it's going to be limited supply, lots in the beginning, less and less over time, halvings, all that, except you're not going to mine it. By participating in the float ecosystem, you receive allocations each block based on, you know, how much interaction you get and how much content you put out and all that good stuff. So if you've ever wanted to mine crypto but you couldn't, well, now if you can produce content, you can by producing content, which I think is badass. It's all, that, that, that native token is going to enable a lot of other commerce as well. Some of that you'll hear about in a second. Uh, float Marketplace is coming, and they will eventually have it to where it's not just like where you can go like list some stuff for sale, like classified ads. Basically, you have your own storefront. Think of it like Etsy with crypto on a freedom of speech platform. Facebook, they're coming for you, bro. They are. Zuckerberg, they're coming for you. Um, Float is not just going to stay a Twitter clone. Not only are they adding the marketplace, and again, think of the marketplace as like Etsy with crypto-only options uh, and a payment gateway. Uh, they are also going to be adding communities, groups like Facebook has, which is one of the big advantages that Facebook has, in my opinion, over Twitter-like sites. 
people being able to say, hey, I want to discuss gardening, and I don't want to just chase a hashtag. So they're adding that. Um, very soon, in fact. They are, um, right now, and I don't know exactly what you have to do, but to live stream on Float requires some sort of third-party app. And somebody said, well, see, what you got to do is, and like you got into anything beyond click a button and stream, I was like, I'm out. They're going to make that easier. They're going to make that go away. That was like a, a get-by during the beta. And that leads me to something else I think is really awesome about Float, with the exception of the live streaming. What Float has, that sites like Dbuzz and all that, Hive and Steam and all that, don't, you sign up, and then it just fucking works. Like, that's how a, a social media website should be. You should sign up, and it should just work. And if you're going to have cryptocurrency with it, you shouldn't have to do 87 things to make your wallet work. There should be a wallet there, and it should just fucking work. Well, that's what Float does already. Right now, you have a Bitcoin wallet, so you have a Float wallet, and there will be other cryptos coming so that there can be more commerce in more ways for people. So Float can also be seen eventually to become your crypto wallet. Um, right now, um, they are looking also at becoming a library app. So they're going to be able to cross-function with the Library Odyssey video network. And that's just the first. They're actually going to create like kind of a federation of other you know, new media sites that allow all of the content to integrate together, becoming more of not just a place to share content, but a direct content aggregator. Because a lot of us, we use these other sites as well, and it would be great if we could just aggregate that content to float and back and forth. They're setting that up. Um, I, I, I just really wanted to kind of point out, I think Float's like throwing down the gauntlet. They're going after everybody. Like, I, I always saw them this year as I was using them and learning the platform, like, okay, they're, they're going after Twitter. No, they're going after Facebook. They're going after YouTube. They're going after everybody. Good. Because somebody needs to do it. And here's why I wanted to talk about that today and lead into this discussion on free speech. There has been a war on free speech in our country for a long time. With COVID, it was amped up to a level that's hard to even understand the logic behind it, other than they want total, complete control of people. And <clears throat> here's what I mean by that. There, are, there have been questions about all aspects of this illness and treatments for it. And anything that is conflicted 1% with whatever the talking heads are told to say in the media is immediately attacked and, and, and called conspiracy loon theory. This is dangerous. This is dangerous. Because if you can do it with that, what can't you do it with? This is something that literally affected the entire world. If you can do it with that, then you can do it with anything. Because a lot of things, the way you squash free speech and get away with it is, nobody cares. There's only a small number of people that care about this thing. So... It's really easy to squash free speech. When you have something that literally upends the entire world, you can't question anything about it. And when you're in the realm of science, and science becomes a dictatorship, this is tyranny at a level that people just can't understand. We've been so blinded and dumbed down by our educational system, we don't even know what free speech is. Somebody comes to a private blog and makes a comment that's obscene, and you take it down and they say, you violated my free speech. But then a site that is supposed to be a platform for speech starts limiting what can be said and punishing people who have built huge followings there, like taking away somebody's phone because you don't like the conversation they're having, and that's okay. And then in the realm of science, the one place that this was not supposed to be a thing, it's become de facto. We have doctors and scientists being threatened with having their careers destroyed 
for pointing out things that are inaccurate within the narrative, and a year later, year and a half later, being proven right after their reputations and careers are destroyed. I'd have people come up, well, yeah, you know, but Trump thought that, so we, of course, didn't believe it. Like, that should influence science. And I also want to talk about this thing with, uh, well, you know, Facebook and Twitter, YouTube, Google, etc. They're private companies. They can censor speech if they want to. No, I'm a private company. Jack Spirico, the Survival Podcast, and all my affiliated things are private companies. I get no money from the government. I don't work with the government. The government doesn't work with me. I don't try to set public policy, etc. What you have with these platforms, and that's what they are. It's very important to understand their platforms. They have direct working relationships with our government, and they use public money. There's a link. There's a lot of links in today's notes. You want to go check them out uh, down in, below the video, um, including links to the T-shirts and all, too. But there's one down there, and you can see where Facebook has received over $700 million in government subsidies. If you want to do research on the site that that's on, you can find out how much Google and you know, Twitter, etc., have gotten hundreds of millions, maybe billions of dollars. Um, $700 million is 70% of a billion dollars. Facebook has received, just in subsidies, over $700 million of your money, and then they decide what you are and are not allowed to say and share, and they censor things that are the opinions of doctors and scientists in the name of medicine and science. It's a bizarre old world. And it needs to stop. And this is why I'm announcing today that I'm going full bore, pushing, float, as my platform of choice going forward. Up until now, the platform I've been using, and I, I, won't, I won't stop using it, but for these things has been MeWe. And I, I like MeWe, but I cannot have a conversation with anybody at MeWe. I can't talk to developers I can't talk to the owner, the founder, etc. And what I see out of MeWe is this hidden backdoor thing where no one can see anything until they're on the inside. We're kind of sequestered away in a hidey hole. There's good and bad in that. My other problem, though, I haven't seen MeWe release a new feature in years. MeWe seems to have been built. They put it up. They support the platform. It is what it is. I've heard nothing out of MeWe that tells me anything that I want to see added is coming. No marketplace, no crypto integration. And they're still being hosted on Amazon Web Services, which is frightening. It really is. So I'm not going to leave MeWe. They've not done anything wrong to me. I have some really great groups there. But what I'm going to push every day going forward is Float. Because I believe there's a team there that is dedicated to two things that are incredibly important. One, first and foremost, free speech. But two, technological innovation. Building the next great platform. See, if, if when I really understood what Float's about to do, what I understood was the free speech is the icing on the cake as a business model. The important thing is the technological integrations. Because again, all these sites, you know, you should go on Steam it, man, you should go on whatever. I tried doesn't work. Well, you got to do this over here and then that over there, and every time you log in on Dbuzz, you need your friend. No. No, no, no. No. Username, password, login, work. Anything more than that, the site is doomed to never achieve 
greatness. I just say doom to failure, never achieve greatness. So that's where I'm going to be pushing everything going forward. And as these new features come out, we'll continue to build up our presence there, to speak and to be heard. And I think this is what people need to realize right now. This idea that you're going to make a change, that you're going to make things better by voting, by lobbying, by writing your congressman, it's time to put away childish things. Seriously. When I was a child, I spoke in childish ways, and I believed in childish things. But when I grew to an adult, I knew it was time to put away childish things. This fantasy is what you were taught in civics class in school. It clearly doesn't work that way. It's very clear that the people in power in this country are controlled by money and media and the banking system itself. That the lobbyists write the bills that become laws that your Congress clown votes for. As far as I'm concerned, you just had an election stolen from you right in broad daylight, and I'm not a big advocate of Trump, but I am an advocate for truth. And was it stolen? I honestly don't know. And you know why I don't know? Because we haven't had a legitimate conversation about it, because we can't. Because we can't. Because everything was done to shut down the argument before it was investigated. I'm sorry, I don't want to hear the people who shrieked and yelled, Russia, 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 for three years, said there's nothing to see here, when we have people pulling a suitcase out from under a desk and counting ballots in the middle of the night after counting was closed for the night. No, I don't want to hear that. But you know what? I also don't want to fight that fight. Where we win, where we win is in the world of innovation. Where we win, I'm an anarchist. I do not believe in fighting their shitty system. I believe in building a better system. A better system. A system where I can say what I want to say, and if I'm wrong and you want to prove it, then we debate that. We discuss that. We have rigorous academic debate with each other. And we let people judge for themselves based on our command of the facts. And then we actually test theories and see if they work. And if I have a great theory and everybody believes it, we try and it fails, obviously I was wrong. See how simple that is? If we have a scientific debate, we use the scientific process in our debate. Not shut up. doesn't work. I believe in a free market. Where if you love what I'm saying and you want to tip me for what I'm saying, you can do so. Where I can't be deplatformed by the platform itself. Where I can't be demonetized but left on the platform. Think about what that means. you got a YouTube creator. Millions of followers. Yeah? YouTube just shuts off their money but leaves them up. It's almost worse than just banning them. Oh, so you're willing to use their content, but you're no longer willing to compensate them for it. Interesting. You know, this is nothing new with Google. I've covered this before. But I watched Google destroy mommy bloggers, what, 15 years ago? There was a website called Paper Post where people could go out and say, I want to be blogged about and pay bloggers like a platform. Yeah. And um, they would get links. And this made them rank better in Google because Google's algorithm was shitty. So instead of fixing their shitty algorithm... They had interns set up accounts at Paper Post, find all the bloggers doing it, and manually took their listings out of Google and adjusted their page rank to zero. Mommy bloggers. 
So when I see what they're doing at A, I'm like, well, if, if, if you'll do that kind of cutthroat, nasty, underhanded, indecent shit to mommy bloggers, because you can't fix your own shitty algorithm, that SOE guy, uh, um, SEO guys like me were just making you know, bitches out of you with. So instead of fixing your shit, you destroyed mommy bloggers. Then what you're doing today, when we get into things that are trillion-dollar industries like pharmaceuticals, Protecting vaccine companies? I'm not surprised. Isn't it ironic that last week I let off with a, a video about free speech and I said the real conspiracy theory was the belief that big tech, big business, big media, and the banks have all this power, but they don't use it to censor people unfairly. And then they took that video down and censored it unfairly. That what I might appeal, they said I gave misinformation out. So I, I filed an appeal, and I said, please tell me what I gave that was misinformation so that I can correct it. Please tell me one thing I said in this video that's untrue. I got no response, appeal denied. You have a strike. Whatever. Throw me off YouTube if you want to. Go ahead. Throw us all off. Keep doing it. Because this is what's happening now. These companies are murdering themselves. They're killing themselves. They think they're winning right now. They're not. Because so many people that cheer on the censorship don't realize that censorship never stops at some place. It always incrementally, over time, increases. And a lot of these people that think it's just fine, it's no big deal, they're just trying to protect us. They're coming for you eventually. They'll censor you too. And that's why I think we need to start building these alternatives now. Now. And I just would, I want to end today's episode with this question for you. Can you name one time in the history of humanity where after it was all said and done, the people doing the censoring, the people silencing speech, turned out to be the good guys? If you can, put it in the comments down there either on the blog or the YouTube or Odyssey or wherever. Wherever you're at, tell me. Tell me one time that the book burners were the good guys. Tell me one time that the people that felt the need to cut out a man's tongue because they feared what he might say were the good guys. Just one. And don't tell me Facebook and Google and Twitter are private companies. A private company is not funded with the public's money. And all three of them have been highly funded with the public's money. With that, I'll be back tomorrow with another episode. Well, hello, folks. Welcome to Miyagi Mornings, episode 122, Knowing Why You Believe What You Believe. And this is one of my tenets, one of my laws of life. I've taught this one way or another um, over and over again since 2008 when I started my podcast. I'll never stop teaching it. It is, uh, it is the vaccine to one of the most insidious viruses infecting the world. The virus known as ignorant ignorance, ignorant ignorance, or maybe a better term would be unconscious ignorance. See, there's two real types of ignorance in the world. There's conscious ignorance and there's unconscious ignorance. I guess there's ignorant ignorance would really be the things you don't know that you don't know that you can't possibly know because you have no one's thought of them yet, right? Throw that out. But what I mean when I say conscious ignorance is I'm ignorant when it comes to, let's say, exactly how to build 
Elon Musk's starship that will eventually travel to Mars. I don't know how to do it, and I know I don't know how to do it. There's certain things and parts of it that I understand the basic physics behind it, but I don't know how to build it. I couldn't for the life of me begin to explain to you, starting from, okay, we have raw material, let's turn it into starship. And I know that. And then there's unconscious ignorance. Believing that you know about a thing that you've made a decision on and not knowing that you're ignorant about it. And that is at an all-time high in the world today. And it's due to mostly politicalization of issues that shouldn't be political, like how to treat a virus, whether or not a vaccine is safe, all of these things have become politicized. And I want you to think about something, though. If you have two views of a thing, and they're, they're mostly in opposition to each other, even if the truth is somewhere sort of kind of in the middle, one of those diametrically opposed positions will be the more correct position. You're flipping up a coin, right? So you could end up with the people that are on, let's say, the liberal side of the position just being on the side that ends up being right, or the conservative side of the issue just ending up being on the side that's being right. So you can be right, mostly right, still have no idea why you're right. And that's almost as bad as being wrong and having no idea why you're wrong. Because what this, what this does, the cancer that it really is, It's this illness that exists in society that makes us coming together and discussing our differences impossible. It's impossible. If you don't know why you believe what you believe, you can't explain it to somebody. You're going to fall back on catchphrases and this person said so. You're not going to be able to articulate the reasoning behind your stance. And therefore, you're not going to be able to understand the reasoning behind the other person's stance, assuming they're actually informed and they have any idea why they believe what they believe. Only when we come together with a true understanding of the issue and why we believe what we believe can we have a discussion where we might have more discovery is to greater truth. And we don't have that. Now, this is an interesting thing, though. The way I got this topic today is a question that doesn't sound like it's actually about the subject, but it is. The question was, how do you mentally and emotionally deal with family and loved ones who have become woke-obsessed. They're the woke. You know, critical race theory, women who aren't women that are actually men that dress like women, that take hormones and live like women, competing in girls' sports and destroying women's sports and girls' sports, and they think that's okay. Like, people like that. That's what I'm getting out of that term, woke-obsessed. Not only do they buy into it, but like it becomes the most important thing in their life. Well, if I only answered that, it'd be pretty short, because here's what it is. You have exactly one person in the whole world, in fact, in the whole universe, or even in the multiverses, you have one person where you can control what that person thinks, how that person feels, and what they do with the information given to them. One, and that's you. So how do you deal with another person's thoughts, how they handle their information, their emotions, and what they think? You don't. You don't deal with it. You don't entertain it. You don't worry about it. Because you should not worry about that which you do not control. I can't control what my wife believes or thinks. Now, 
we, we have different varying levels of interest in deep issues. My interest is much deeper than hers as a general principle, where her interest is deep at a specific time to a specific thing. So where I guess you would say I'm like the person that's well-read, right, well-informed. Like, and it's not just because I'm a podcaster. Like, this is a personality trait innate to me. I was the kid that, you know, we're going to have science class? Okay, so I'll read the science book. Like, the whole book in the first week or two. And, like, the whole book wasn't even covered in the class. And, like, I'm done. I Just give me the test and I'll take it. Not just because I was smart, but because I, I had this innate curiosity. Science was interesting, so let me learn more about it. History was interesting. I read the whole book. I did this starting about fifth or sixth grade. I would get a, a class and a textbook and I'd read it. And then I would make notes, but they weren't normal notes, right? They weren't like, oh, I need this for a test. It was like, these are things I want to know more about. And then I would do independent research before there was an internet. It was so damn easy as to these other things that I wanted to know about. Who was this person? Was this person, like, this, this person sounds way too good to be true. Were there any flaws in this person? And I would go to the library and I would look up information, which is mostly found in, like, encyclopedias, because that's how old I am. And I would form this broader knowledge. And then I would be like, well, that is about this particular time in history. And there's no more real information that's specific to this thing I want to know more about. Maybe I should read a book that was set in this time in history. Because now it's less controlled. It's more just about how somebody looked at it. And so I have this broad depth of knowledge. My wife's like, I don't care. All right? But what will happen is something will pop up and she'll have an interest in it because we respect each other. I can give her information, but I, I still don't control her conclusions or her emotions or what she decides to do after she makes her conclusion. And that's my wife. So if I don't control how my wife feels about and uses the information we discuss, who the hell do I control? No one else. I, don't, I didn't control my son when he was a child and lived under my roof to that level, nor did I wish to, because then I would be raising a child versus raising an adult, okay? And, and that's your job as parents, by the way, to raise adults, not to raise children. If you raise a child, look what you've done. If you raise an adult, good on you, right? A little thought there. Maybe we'll do an episode on that one day. Um, So I don't control them. I don't control my grandchildren now, even though we're homeschooling them. I, I control their study habits to a degree. I control their effort to a degree in that if you don't put the effort in, then you have restrictions in your life that you don't like. So I create motivation. But I don't control that he's really into, like, my grandson's into big cats. I don't have to do anything to get him to learn more about leopards and jaguars and stuff like that. All I have to do to like encourage it at all is ask him a question that he doesn't know the answer to and walk away because that's how people operate. Okay, So I can't control any of those people, but yet I think I'm going to control my, my Wokenista family member or loved one. You can't. So the answer is you don't do anything. However, if you want to have a constructive conversation with that person and have them understand where you're coming from, and, and you understand where they come from, you also don't control the fact that they may not really know why they believe what they believe. But they may actually know some things that have led them in that direction that you don't. And those things might be true. Believe it or not. Even about something like 
critical race theory. Now, I agree, before anybody loses their minds in some of the things I'm about to say, critical race theory is being used as a Trojan horse to get inside our schools and teach cultural Marxism to our children. I know why I believe that, by the way. I also do not believe that everything that comes from the world of critical race theory is incorrect. And I wonder how many people have this knee-jerk reaction to critical race theory on either side that literally know nothing about what it actually is or what it actually says. I'm going to ask you honestly, and I want you to answer this for yourself. You can put it in the comments if you want, but I don't need it. It's more important you ask for yourself. What do you actually know, not think, know about critical race theory, the theory? Not what's being done with it in the schools, not how it's being presented, but the actual underlying, don't scream 1619 project, because it's a different thing, critical race theory. How much have you read about it? What do you know? One of my good friends in the world, John Willis, I remember one time a video totally unrelated to something like this he was talking about, but he's like, if you take people that are polarized on any issue, no matter what it is, and you say sit down and write down everything you know, not you think you know about this issue, most of those people would end up staring stupidly at a blank piece of paper because they don't know anything. Because he was talking underlying facts, not talking points, not slogans, not catchphrases, underlying facts. So here's an underlying fact about critical race theory that states there are structural things that have resulted in inequality over time in the world of the United States of America between black and white people. That is a true statement. Now, how much it still affects us today is debatable, but it ain't slavery And there are people alive that were alive when it was going on. So at one time, not that long ago, we're talking like 30s, 40s, there were places that were predominantly occupied by black people, neighborhoods that were predominantly black neighborhoods. And through mechanisms of control of government-assisted loans and the banking industry, they were labeled as high-risk areas for getting your money back if you issued a mortgage there. Now this wasn't in, you know, directly black people don't get mortgages. It's where where the black people mostly live, we don't do mortgages. Now that is structural. And one of the components of critical race theory is that you can be participating in something that you know disadvantages one race over the other without being aware of it. Hold on to that thought, because there's some shit going on right now. Okay, flips that around. But that happened. So that, that created an entire generation that were regulated to renting or not being able to harvest equity in their home to improve it. And it further ingrained poverty within the black community. That all happened. Does that happen now? No. But how long does it take to recover from generational poverty? One, two, three generations? I did it in one. I come from a poor family. I got no assistance from my family. No one helped me. And in one generation, I went from being a poor-ass kid that it was the son of a bootleg coal miner. You want to talk about broke. Bootleg coal miner does not equal wealthy. 
And in one generation, I did it. But I will acknowledge it wasn't easy. And I will acknowledge not everybody could have done it. And I will acknowledge that somewhere along the way, I had some lucky breaks. But I also took advantage of them. And I can't say for a fact that some of the people that helped me along the way may not have chosen to help me had I been a black man. I don't know. Knowing the people that I can think of that had the most influence on my life, I'd like to believe they would have. One of my greatest mentors along the way, a man that taught me so much about communications and putting proposals together and was like kind of like a hero to me, was a guy named Ron. Guess what? He was black. So I figured he would have helped me. Would I have gotten to him? I don't know. Have I helped anybody along the way that was black? Yeah. Have I employed more white people than black people? Yep. Do you know why? More white people applied for the jobs. Plain and simple. When I got into a position where I was hiring people at kind of upper level, I just had more applicants. Does that make me part of the problem? The truth is, I don't really know. All I know is I was trying to go along to get along and survive the way that I was trying to go along to get along. This doesn't mean that we should start teaching our children that white people are oppressors. But it also doesn't mean that we should totally disavow that there's any structural problems in our society today that may turn around and actually harm people due to the color of their skin. In fact, you could be participating in a system that you know, punishes people for the color of their skin without realizing that's what you're doing. You know, like claiming that anybody that was white has an inherent advantage in society and has not really earned what they've, what they've acquired, that they somehow owe it to somebody else just because they happen to have been born white. See, this goes both ways. So if you were actually trying to solve structural problems, you would actually discuss... Structural problems. And this is what people, like myself, who say, there may be some truth in here, because we're actually informed, know the things I'm talking about. But where is it today? Where is it today? And let's talk about that. Not some shit that happened 250 years ago. Let's talk about the problem today. Well, you know, blah, 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 you know, people of color. No, 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 no. We have to know why we believe what we believe. So let us discuss this problem. Which problem are we discussing? How do we fix it? You know, when you have somebody saying, well, you know, like the President of the United States saying, black people don't have accountants and lawyers. This should be the most insulting thing that black people ever heard. However, the truth, even within the dementia, could be that there are segments of the black community they would have a very difficult time even knowing how to get in touch with. But there would be white people that have that problem too. There would be Hispanic people that have that problem too. That are so poor, so broke, they're just not sure how to start, where to start, who to contact. See, that's a structural problem. And it may, if you got, if we figured out like all the people who want, first of all, want to try and have that problem, you may find that that group is made up disproportionately of blacks or Hispanics or whites. But it's still the same problem. So you build the solution to the problem. This requires 
knowing why you believe what you believe and focusing on the actual problem. You can look at any place that we divide society, and there's another hot-button issue today, would be the treatment of COVID-19 through the use of alternative treatments, which should be mainstream treatments in my opinion, such as hydroxychloroquine. Why do I believe hydroxychloroquine can be used to treat COVID-19? Why? Well, because not because some guy said so. Not because, well, eventually we got a half-assed well-done trial that says so. Because I understand the biochemical means by which it works. I understand that HCQ is an ionophore for zinc, and if you put zinc inside the human cell, it slows down or potentially shuts down the replication of mRNA replicating viruses. I know this is real science. I know this is how this works, and I know for that to work, you would have to give the medication before the virus had done the damage. Because people dying of COVID-19 in hospitals are not dying of a virus. They're dying of the damage the virus has done. The virus has already run its course when most of these people are expiring. You can wipe the virus out, and that person still has massive lung damage, dry pneumonia, blood clotting, right? If I want to treat somebody for infection, and they've been shot with a shotgun, antibiotics will treat the infection, but it won't fix the damage. What I want to do is put a bulletproof vest on them before they get shot. Why does ivermectin work? I don't know. I don't know. And I know that I don't know. But looking at the body of empirical evidence and observational evidence of medical doctors who have used it, the preponderance of the evidence is that it works. Do I know this? No. But I believe this and I know why I believe it. Because the data directs that it makes sense. I do not understand the biological mechanism by which it would work, assuming that it does. And the doctors using it don't either. They haven't gotten that far yet. Do you know where ivermectin come from, comes from? It comes from one spot near a golf course in Japan. It's the only place that it's ever been found in the world. And it is considered one of the miracle drugs of society. I know that ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine are safe to take as medications. Whether they work or not for COVID, that's a different question. I know they're safe. Why do I know they're safe? Because they've both been with us for more than 70 years. They both have very low incidences of side effects or problems, unless they're like massively overdosed, which you can massively overdose somebody with an apple. Right? You, can, you can massively overdose somebody with apple seeds and kill them. But we don't say that apple seeds are dangerous inherently of themselves. See how simple this is? This is not hard to understand. So I know that it's safe. I know that hydroxychloroquine is safe because in over 70% of the world, you can walk into the equivalent of an Eckerd drugs and buy it over the counter without a prescription. And we don't have people dying from it. So when the establishment told us early on it was extremely dangerous to take, I didn't think I knew that was a lie. So since I knew it, I also believed it. We can believe something and know something. We can believe something and not know something. We can either be Gnostic to it Gnostic means knowing, having knowledge of the thing, and hence the belief. We can be agnostic. I don't know, but the evidence indicates, so I've chosen this belief. If we could get society to think this way, and here's the important thing. Let's say somebody turns you on to this video, and you disagree with my conclusions. That's okay. That's okay. But 
The only way we could discuss the disagreement productively is for us to know why we believe what we believe. And I'll end with this. The only way I believe that you can know why you believe what you believe is to be able to argue the counter-argument intelligently. You have to actually research something to the point where, okay, I know what I inherently believe. I know what my prejudice is, my life experience, my bias, my perception, my innate knowledge, my long-term gain knowledge. I know, I know where I come down initially. And if it makes you more comfortable, you can dig in there first. And then once you're sure you know, then you have to go over to the other side and say, imagine I'm an attorney and I'm trying to represent my client even though I know he's guilty. Or I think he's guilty. I still have to try to prove to a jury beyond a, you know, that there's reasonable doubt to his guilt. So I have to use everything that I can to make that case, or I'm not doing my job. Is if I if I can't do that, I should step aside and say I cannot represent this person. Right? Makes perfect sense. That's what you have to do to know why you believe what you believe. You have to research the other side's argument and fully understand it. And then you still have to be willing to have a conversation with them that says, present your argument. And what you'll end up is having a discussion, if you've done this, assuming the other person's not fully informed, that's very judo-like. It's, it's actually more like Sistema, like Russian Sistema. It's just kind of like they can't get a grip on you. And it's very frustrating for them. And you have two things you can do then. You can be productive with it, or you can be destructive with it. If you're just trying to prove your point, just prove you're right, you're destructive. If you're trying to lead them somewhere. And the best way to lead somebody somewhere is, well, why? But why? Well, how does that work exactly? Give me an example. Let them tell you their side of the argument. Listen more and speak less. Because a lot of these arguments are so flawed that the more the person says their words the more they realize how ridiculous their argument is. And when their argument is, well, everybody knows. Well, how does everybody know? Well, so-and-so says, great, why should we listen to that person? What are they basing that on? The science. Well, what is the science? If you want to deal with them at all, start with dealing with yourself, and then if you want to discuss it, that's how you have a discussion. That's... All I got for you on this one. I'll catch up with you tomorrow with another episode of Miyagi Mornings. Well, hello there, guys and gals. Welcome to Miyagi Mornings episode, let me see here, episode 123, for those watching the video instead of listening to the recap anyway. Um, today we're going to talk about Bitcoin. I try to do like a Miyagi Mornings video a week that involves cryptocurrency in some way. We're going to stick to Bitcoin today. We're going to talk about maximalism. A little bit, but not in the world of cryptocurrency. Gold maximalists, we'll talk about that a little bit. But what I really want to drive home to you today is why any developing nation, if you want to use that term, I don't know of a better term for it, any nation that's not, you know, the part of the EU, China, Japan, Australia, the United States, Canada, Probably leaving some people out that you know they're they're really tied into the central banking system, uh, and they benefit from it. And I don't mean that their people benefit from it. I mean the nation benefits from it. Anybody kind of outside that kind of traditional hegemon? I don't know. Maybe South Africa goes in there, you know. But anybody out of that should immediately, as quickly as possible, 
especially your smaller, poorer nations that either don't have their own currency, like El Salvador's using the dollar instead of having their own currency, or they have their own currency, but it's really so manipulated by the dollar, they might as well use the dollar, should immediately follow El Salvador's lead and adopt Bitcoin as legal tender in their country. They don't have to even get rid of whatever other currency they have. They just need to do that. And by de facto standard, it will eventually rapidly become the standard currency in their country. And I'm sure there's a lot of you that disagree, and there's a lot of you that agree, but I'm thinking even the people that agree may not follow the logic or know the reasoning behind why I would say this. It has to do with something that I think most people don't know, because you're not taught this. You're not taught this. If you have an economics degree, odds are you weren't taught this. Now, you were probably given all the information necessary to come to this conclusion on your own, but no one in a classroom, you know, at a, at a college or, or a university, what have you, ever stood up and told you what I'm about to told you. Some of you have heard it before because you listen to my audio podcast, and you have. So now you probably know where I'm going. It's how money derives its value. Where does the value of money come from? And this is where our friends, the gold maximalists, come in, and they're the worst offenders of not knowing the answer to that question. Well, only gold's real money, man. It's valuable, you know. It's been valuable forever. Look, I again, I, I talk about investing a lot and, and you know holding uh, diverse assets, and I hold gold, and I hold silver in physical form. And I don't believe in this idea of, well, because I think gold is a good asset to hold, then cryptocurrency shit. I just think that's nonsensical, and I don't do it the other way around either. But gold is terrible money. Gold is terrible as money. Gold is incredibly easy to manipulate people with. Gold is difficult. So is silver, by the way. Everything I'm saying about gold here is, is true about silver as well. Gold is expensive to secure. Gold is expensive to transfer. Gold is complicated to transfer to deal with small denominations for value. The most expensive thing you can make in the world of silver is a, a silver dime. A tenth of an ounce. It's incredibly expensive. Go try to buy it. Uh, I worked with a mint in the past. It, it didn't work out. But the most expensive thing we sold by the ounce was silver dimes. Why? Because it cost as much in effort and energy to make a silver dime as it does to make a silver dollar. The problem is when you buy something for $4.50 and you're trying to pay in silver. And, you know, you have five bucks worth. And it's not a dime now because silver is worth way more. You see, it is complicated. But even if it's silver and gold, where does it derive its value? Well, it's valuable because it's rare. Well, these are these are characteristics that make something likely to be adopted as money, right? It's rare. It's fungible, meaning that one unit and one unit are the same. Um, all of these things, it, it's difficult to counterfeit. You know, I mean, that's how paper bills work. They, they make them more and more complicated for somebody to make their own little printing press in their basement and, and make more of them. It's okay for the Federal Reserve to do it, but these are characteristics that make people adopt something as money. They're not in of themselves where money derives value. Money derives value from one place and one place only, the economy in which it circulates. Now, this requires confidence, it requires functionality, it requires all those characteristics of money that we talk about, but there's plenty of things that meet those characteristics that aren't used as money in a particular economy. 
Because all the value in an economy comes from the people and the resources and what's done with those things in that economy. And this is why people in these developing countries, if they care about their citizens, should adopt Bitcoin as legal tender. And you could do it with another cryptocurrency. I just think, Bit, like I said, I, I mentioned maximalists. So a maximalist, so if you don't, and those the gold maximalist is, is the maximalist in their world, right? That only gold is money. Well, there's maximalists in the cryptocurrency world that think only Bitcoin is a true cryptocurrency. Everything else is a shit coin. I would call myself, I, I do dabble in altcoins, and I, but I would call myself almost a, a maximalist light, if that's a thing. I believe that the best cryptocurrency for the world is Bitcoin. Um, I do have some issues with it being, basically, it can be a surveillance coin. Yeah, I understand that. We're developing more and more ways to change that. Um, and it's why I like privacy coins like Monero and Pirate Chain. Right? So, maximalist light. But when it comes to a nation that is trying to free its citizens from the clutches of the global banks, Bitcoin makes the most sense, especially with technologies like Jack Mahler's Strike, where you can spend a dollar's worth of Bitcoin and it doesn't have big fees. And anybody can be up and running and basically be banked with Bitcoin or dollars in seconds. It's very, very powerful. And it's, it, it solves these problems that gold and silver would have. Like, imagine El Salvador's decided we're going to make gold our currency. They have the same problems they do if they're going to make dollars, U.S. dollars or currency. And the same problems if they said we're going to make the El Salvadoran dollar and just print our own money. It, you still have all the same problems that the banks can fuck with your currency. And you only can acquire dollars or gold by going outside of your economy and taking your value and distributing your value in return for something you don't control. And if you use your own currency, the El Salvadoran coconut bill or whatever, then you are subject to the manipulation of the banks devaluing your currency. You also are now putting a tool into the hands of your future politicians, even if everybody that was in power at the time you did it was as pure as the driven snow and would not you know, inflate the currency when they shouldn't, etc. Somebody will eventually. You will get voted out. There will be a new dictator. There will be a new regime. You'll die of old age. And so sooner or later, you will have somebody have, you know, the one ring, the ring of power, one, run, one ring to bind them, right? And that is the power of the printing press. And they will use it. So anything you, if you did manage to make your own currency work, you will have it destroyed eventually unless it is hard-coded that that power cannot be wielded. It cannot be used. That's what Bitcoin does. But what Bitcoin really does for a country like El Salvador is let them build value in their economy from the circulation of value within it without exporting it. And the only thing that can do that well right now is a cryptocurrency. Again, I just think Bitcoin is the best one for the job. Here's what I mean by that. If El Salvador needs more dollars in their economy, how do they get them? Right? But if, if, if El Salvador needs more Bitcoin in their economy, how do they get it? Well, they can mine it. But they also can just begin trading and using it, and you end up with Bitcoin flowing into that economy and not going back out as it accrues value. This is the issue that a lot of people point out with Bitcoin. By the way, it's, it's, it's very true of gold, too. 
the, the problem with Bitcoin is people don't want to spend it. That people hold on to it. right? Because it's deflationary, because people buy it for the purpose of it going up in price, they don't let go of it. It doesn't circulate. But why? Remember yesterday when I talked about you know critical thinking and knowing why you believe what you believe, and I said the most important thing you can ask is, but why? But why? Why do people not spend Bitcoin? Because it goes up in value. Maybe. Lots of things go up in value that people let go of. Why? Well, because they buy Bitcoin. They're not paid in it. It's not the dominant form of capital that is given to them in exchange for whatever value they produce, whether that's labor, whether that's intelligence, whether that's information. Most people in the United States are paid in dollars. If immediately you went to work for me, for instance, let's say I formed Jack Inc., and I said, anybody who works for Jack Inc. gets paid in Bitcoin, you'd start spending Bitcoin like that. Now, you might spend it by converting it to dollars, but you would spend it. See, here's the reality. Anybody who has the means to do this, right? so they make enough money to do what I'm about to explain, and enough discipline and concern for their future, will follow three baskets that money goes into. You have immediate use, and I consider immediate use anything that's used within a 30-day cycle of, of receipt. Like, there's a certain amount of money you're going to pay your electric bill with. You're watching this on the internet, you probably have an ISP, an internet service provider. You're going to pay them. Even if you get paid on the first of the month and that bill's not due to the 28th of the month, essentially that money is gone the second it comes in. Now, many people, unfortunately, that's all they have, right? But people that make a surplus of income, that make more than they spend because they're disciplined enough to live on a fucking budget like a fucking adult, like you should have been fucking taught in school and they didn't fucking teach you. And yes, I threw out all those F-words because you fucking need to hear that if you're not doing it have two other baskets of money. And then the third basket has a lot of diversity of what could be in it, right? It could be gold, it could be silver, it could be Bitcoin, it could be stocks and bonds and mutual funds and all, real estate holdings, right? That's long-term money. That's long-term money. And we'll get to that one in a second. The middle bucket of money is short-term savings, Short-term savings. We're going to take money that's in short-term savings, and that is for, eh, the car got a flat tire, and when I look at the repair bill on it, and I look at the tread on the tires, it's time to just put four new tires on the car. right? You know, if I don't do it this month, I'll have to do it next month. And instead of putting it on MasterCard or Visa, I use a short-term, like the emergency spending money. Makes sense? Like This is what everybody that has any discipline in their life and, and surplus income does. So maybe that long-term money is in a 401k. Maybe it's in a self-directed IRA. Maybe it's in just stocks and bonds. Maybe it's just in a jar of bills hidden in the floor of your home. Who knows? But you still have those three buckets. That third bucket, people that are sane and disciplined investors do not give a flying shit when the price goes down or up, up or down. They don't worry about it because they know the long-term trajectory if they're disciplined investors. If you're putting long-term money into Bitcoin and you're a disciplined investor and Bitcoin cuts in half, you shouldn't worry about it. All you should be thinking is now the amount of Bitcoin that's going to go into that third bucket goes up. The quantity goes up. I'm buying more. right? No one worries about that with all these other investments, but also we're going to worry about it with Bitcoin because it's volatile. All right. The immediate spend money. 
The fact that Bitcoin's volatile means nothing. Because this is the objection. Like, but it's, what if it crashes? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. If my bill's five bucks this month and I got five bucks worth of Bitcoin, I pay it. The midterm money is where you might see some use of either stable coins or something like the U.S. dollar. That midterm money would be the money that people would maybe convert. And we'd have a certain amount of stable value here. A stable value fund? Oh, you ever hear that term before? Right? In the middle, we're transacting in Bitcoin. We're saving a significant portion in Bitcoin. And we might be putting a little bit into some sort of a stabilizing basket. If I started paying you 100% in Bitcoin, you'd end up with something that would look very much like that very, very quickly. You might realize, you know, the bears are coming for the market right now, and I want to make sure I can afford those new tires or whatever. So I'll move a couple thousand bucks into Tether or U.S. dollars or, you know, Mexican pesos or wherever I live. But my transactional, as long as everybody accepts it. So when you make Bitcoin legal tender, by the definition of legal tender, and this is how the El Salvadoran law reads, if I am selling things in El Salvador, the government's basically telling me I have to take Bitcoin. I don't have to hold it. I don't have to ever touch it. But I have to take it. There's all kinds of ways to take it. I can take it any way I want to, and there are ways to take it, including using Mahler's uh, system called Strike, where you're paying me in Bitcoin by scanning a QR code, and I'm getting dollars if that's what I want. But you have to take it. Now, they're not going to be sending guys out machine guns to make you do it. They're basically encouraging that. Well, imagine if that happened where you lived. I start paying you in Bitcoin. You, or if you have a business, everybody's paying you in Bitcoin. Or most people are paying you in Bitcoin. And you can spend it as Bitcoin anywhere you want. What are you going to say? Well, no one's going to spend it now? Do you understand why people hold it the way that they do? Because it's part of this third bucket. That's why. Because they don't get it as compensation for their work and labor. Because in the United States, this is very important, Bitcoin isn't money. Bitcoin is not money in the United States. It's an asset, and hence investors in the United States treat it as an asset. And the way you know it's not money is because if it was money, you could spend it without tax consequences. I'm going to say this again for the slow children in the audience. There is no tax consequence to buying Bitcoin at all, period, the end, full stop. And no, they can't change that as long as it's treated as an asset, I guess the only way you could do that at some point was to, to come up with some form of property tax. That would be about the only way that could ever happen, and I'm not worried about it right now. So, the upshot here is if you're a developing country, if you're in El Salvador, Paraguay, Uruguay, <coughs> excuse me, still dealing with this throat issue, then you want to build your economy in your country. And you need something that the European Central Bank and the American, you know, the American Federal Reserve, the Canadian Federal Reserve can't fuck with. And if you have your own currency that circulates in their market, they have enough horsepower to fuck with your currency. Period. 
End of story. I am sorry. There is no way you could have a conventional modern currency in the federal bank or in the, the global banking network of systems, forex exchangeable, etc., where it cannot be manipulated by a foreign country. China does it to the United States all the time, by the way, by tethering to our dollar and keeping a specific devaluation against the dollar to weaken their own currency so that they can afford to export cheaply. That's one example of even China can do it to us. And we are the global reserve currency, so we can do this all over the world. And since in most of these developing countries, the real currency, the real underlying valued currency is the dollar, every time we use inflation to tax our people, we tax them, at least us in our society, as prices and wages increase, and as they do things like stimulus, we get some of it. They don't. We When we use inflation to tax the American people, we tax the entire developing world by sucking value out of the currency that is actually their reserve currency. The dollar is the global reserve currency. Organizations like the European Central Bank, the Canadian Central Bank, right? These organizations are large enough that they can play in this game of baseball. They can hold their own. They don't always win. They usually lose, but they only lose by a little bit. If we compare it to baseball, then El Salvador would be the Bad News Bears, and the United States would be whoever won the World Series this year. They can't play in the same the same stadium. They can't win. Because Bitcoin cannot be changed. Because it's ironclad, and because things like the Lightning Network... And innovative technologies like Strike have taken away the whole, but I can't buy a, you know, a scone and a bagel and a coffee. Yes, you can. For no fees at all. Now that that's gone, as these countries do this, it will enable them to grow their economies free of our chains that we place on them. And if you can tell me something else that'll do that, go ahead. Go ahead. I'll listen. But bring facts, logic, and reason to your argument. Because the little pupusa lady that sells her pupusas on the street corner can do that with Bitcoin right now. In fact, she's doing it right now. She's there right now while you're listening to this, selling pupusas for Bitcoin. It ain't going to happen, gold maximalists, with gold. And as soon as we, we start using gold, you understand things like where the, the gold built the banking system. The banks are the enemy, and you are using the tool that your enemy prefers when you use gold. Because well, they, they, they all their money's not they may not be backed by gold, but they have plenty of it. Because if you're going to use gold, the only way you're going to be able to use it and flow it flow it through an economy and make it work with security is to use a custodian, a bank. How the hell do you think the Knights Templar got rich? People didn't want to walk. All the way to the to the Holy Land with a bunch of gold on them, because somebody would steal it. It was expensive and hard to secure, so they would get a note on one end, and when they got to the other end, they would be given gold back for their note. The entire global banking system was built off of that. Paper money is just the latest iteration. Debt backed. It's not fiat, guys. It's debt backed. Debt backed currency is the latest iteration of that. It's their game. It's their weapon of choice. Cryptocurrency. It is light. It weighs nothing. It's immediately transferable. 
We all the all the problems that people come up with, why you need Bitcoin Cash or whatever, they're all solved at this point. They don't exist. They don't exist. About the only one left is privacy. Privacy is going to continue to be built on top of the Bitcoin layer. And eventually it may be as good as anything coming out of the privacy coin world. I don't know about that. But again, I'm looking at this now from being the president of Paraguay. Not as Jack Spirico, crypto anarchist, right? I'm looking at from his standpoint of taking care of his people. And I said on my last video about this, the reason I think all this will happen is that people act in their best interest. And a couple of people said, well, so you're saying the United States acts in its best interest? Our government does. Our government acts in, its gov in, in, in the best interest of its government. Well, that's if you want to be in charge of the world. And that's what we want. And that's what we've been brainwashed to want as people, to be in charge of the world, the world leader, to control everything. Everything we do is okay. Everything everybody else does that we don't like is bad. If you're Paraguay, you have no hope of becoming that. You have no desire, no motivation. So the best thing for the, the, the government of Paraguay or Costa Rica or Belize or El Salvador or any of these countries is to empower their people. That's the best thing for those governments to do. All the problems they have relate to their nations being impoverished while we sit and extract value from their nations. Bitcoin, if you apply it properly for those nations, can become a lock that creates a recirculating value within their economies instead of an extraction. That's why. Maybe a little bit hard to grasp, but uh, I think the more you examine it, the more you'll see that it's true. I'll be back tomorrow with something completely different on Miyagi Mornings. Well, hello there, folks. Jack Spirico here with Miyagi Mornings, episode 124. And today we're going to do some self-examination and some real-world looking at the concept of building communities and groups. And as I do this, I need to be very clear the type of community I'm talking about. I'm not talking about a Facebook group or a MeWe group or a float group or some sort of virtual community. Nothing wrong with that. I love those communities, and they can be incredibly valuable. But it's not, though a lot of it will apply, this is not what I'm talking about today. I'm talking about the almost unicorn fantasy that, that some people seem to have of this idea of like this prepper group It's going to be the kind of prepper group you might read about in some sort of prepper porn novel or something, a la James Wesley Rawls or something, uh, where you're going to have this group of people that all come together. They're going to have their guns, their beans, their bullets, their band-aids, and they're going to stand during the collapse of society and fight off everybody. And it, No. No, it's not a thing. It only exists in fiction literature for a reason. Uh, it's never been a thing. And in the places where nations have been invaded and taken over, like when we do it in Afghanistan, that's not how it works. If it doesn't work there with those people who will suffer in ways the average American cannot even conceive of, let alone be willing to do, it ain't going to happen here. There's no little prepper group over in Afghanistan of a bunch of Taliban all banded together and living off of some little remote compound. doesn't happen. However, you can get through a lot of hard times much easier, and you can have a better life right now Building a group sort of like this. But today's question for you is, what value do you offer such a group? And let me be clear, being a nice guy that everybody thinks is kind of cool is not a lot of value. Having a really big collection of AR-15s 
is probably not a lot of value to the majority of things people will need to get through. See, what people mean when they say this, and this is the, the, the glorious ideal that's spouted, and I think it's a good ideal to shoot for, understanding you will always fall short of it. Um, in many religions, there is this kind of like, this is the ideal This is what you always need to shoot for. You will always fall short, therefore the grace of God, right? That type of thing. Um, but yet you keep shooting for it, but you, you accept that you will not fulfill it. And boy, I'll tell you, religion's one thing, but when it comes to this world, this corporeal world that we live in, having this fantasy about this type of a society being able to be built to the point where it doesn't need anybody else is dangerous because it leads to complacency, which leads to not improving your value, which leads to a weak group if you even hold one together. Because let me be very clear about this, this utopian idea of we'll just have all our groups and we'll all exchange with each other and we'll piss off for the rest of the world. I'm all for the rest of the world pissing off. I rely on them as little as possible. I've set my life up so that when we went through this COVID shit over the last year and a half, my life didn't change jaggedly crap. Right, But I still relied on outside services and outside people. And you're going to have to. Because there are nation states that want to be self-sufficient and cannot be. Think about that. You have entire nations, entire national treasuries. They cannot exist without global commerce. And you and Billy Bob and Billy Roy and a couple of good old boys from down the pub and their wives and girlfriends, and second girlfriends, and some cousins that might be girlfriends, y'all are going to go get a farm somewhere, and you're going to do it when a nation can't. You know, we have a word to describe that type of belief system. It's delusional. Even the dadgone Native American tribes, and I'm specifically speaking of the more northern tribes that were less civilization-oriented, unlike the tribes in the southwestern United States, and Mexico, and Central and South America, um, Even those tribes that were more nomadic and wanders, they had commerce within tribes and other tribes. Because it's necessary to not just live a life where you can survive, but have the things that you really want and some of the things that you actually need. Are you going to start manufacturing your own penicillin? No? Okay, then, you know, okay, well, I do it with herbs. Not, you know what? There was a time when people were way more savvy with herbs and people died like shit of the bubonic plague and penicillin made that not a thing anymore. Do you, do you feel what I'm saying here? And you're going to say, but I can, I can have like all this stuff stored up. Okay, that's not self-sufficient. That's self-reliance because over time, self-reliance wanes as you cannot replace things. Self-reliance we measure in time. Got it? Self-sufficiency would be measured in percentage. Self-sufficiency means I'm pretty much indefinitely capable of surviving or, or having what I need without stuff from the outside. Now, if you could build a community that got up to even 30 to 40% self-sufficiency, meaning that everything being used that are for, at least for needs and basic wants, 30 to 40% of that came out of the community, you would hit a home run. I've not yet met one that's that stable, but boy, that would be great. And I think that's doable with the right mindset. The right mindset is we're not going to get there. And answering the question, what value do you offer? People get upset sometimes when I'll ask a question like that. I'm like, you understand if you're going to be part of a real group that's actually really going to do this shit, that whether they directly ask you that or not, you're going to have to be able to answer it. And I think a lot of people have value and they don't even know what it is. But let's make it abundantly clear. Let's take something, because I want you to understand the need to work in the group and outside the group. 
Let's think about if we had a large prepper group, 20 families. They don't live on a compound, but they all live close enough to all do business with and exchange from each other. We got farmers, we got, you know, we got people that can do all kinds of things. We got a guy that's a member of this community that owns a welding shop. Not hard to see the value that he offers, right? Okay? He's got, he can make just about anything that anybody's going to need out of scrap metal. Well, right away, you might think that somebody that can acquire scrap metal cheaply that's highly valuable to fabrication might also have value there and could then bring that material to him. And then when you needed something made, there'd be both the material and the capability to make it. And do you know how long that man will be able to pay for his welding shop, the material and overhead in it, if he's only selling to you and your 20 families? About 35 freaking seconds. Nobody's going to buy enough shit off of a welding shop that 20 families can support it. So you're going, he's going to have to sell to everybody else and also be part of that community. And then you know what that community should be saying to themselves? Well, since Bill's welding is part of our inner cadre community, then Bill's welding success is important to us. And anytime they need anything done, even if Bill is more expensive, guess where they need to take their happy asses? Over to Bill's. This starts to answer the question of what value do you have? Well, one of my values is loyalty to members of the community and their services and their products. I'm not going to go out and buy it when I don't need it, but when I need it, I'm going to buy from them first as long as they can fulfill that obligation. But then we need to all be Bill's freaking sales force. We need to tell everybody we know, if you ever need metal fabrication or welding done, call Bill. Here's his business card. Like we're a damn lead list. Now we're actually providing marketing and value to Bill so that Bill will be there when we need him. And somebody might actually figure out, hey, I would like to have a business offering tools to society. Tools that don't exist. Maybe some really cool shit for gardening. Now, if you... Go to Bill and, and make a wholesale deal with him, and he's making you some kind of badass garden trowel or something like that. Great. And if you sell to everybody in that community, all 20 families buy two, you sold 40. Great. You can pay your bills for three days. Yay. So how do you provide value to the group and continue to be there? And that is that you then begin to sell those out to the wider market. You create an export business. So export businesses, export product, and they, what do they import? Money. And what does money do? It expands resource acquisition capability. So now we have the welding shop working with somebody that's a good marketer, and maybe that marketer's not even the kind of guy that really wants to like pack and ship, but maybe Bill has this big-ass fabrication facility, And they're already packing and shipping things outside of the, the general area anyway where people have large orders and things like that. So then they can create a partnership where, where Ricky does the marketing of this product line, but they do all the fulfillment. We call that drop shipping, except we're not drop shipping from freaking Hong Kong. We're drop shipping from a mile down the road. What value do you bring? I grow tomatoes. Do you grow enough tomatoes for everybody in your neighborhood? No? Okay, then you have limited value with your garden. Your actual value to your group, if you grow tomatoes and peppers and stuff like that, and you're not really doing it as a market farmer, is that you won't be a drain on the food resources as much because you have your own food. How are you paying for the material to do that? You probably have something that you're selling outside the community. So we need to be looking at answering this question two ways. 
what do I offer my community and how am I a stable member of that community but why, but by what I offer to the wider world? That don't have to be entrepreneurial, but if there's no entrepreneurial component to it, And we have, you know, a global pandemic hit and you lose your job and maybe they don't like throw you an extra $300 a week on top of your unemployment this time because they can't because it's a much bigger problem or some other thing hits like that. How are you going to continue to provide value to the group? And that's not judgmental from me to you. That's something for you to judge yourself with and start saying to yourself, self, I need to provide more value. And this is why it's a win-win scenario for you. If you do this and you go out with this, the concept of building a community like this, you will have more capability to build a community like this. Because I'll tell you what's not real valuable in a community of this size, and they are going to be limited in size. There ain't a lot of room for bureaucrats and politicians. We don't need those. We have enough of those in the whole wide world. So you need to have something concrete that you can do. Maybe you're a great teacher, and by being a great teacher you can teach skills to your community, but you teach skills to the wider world, and then you're exporting knowledge and importing money, and money pays for resources that go within the community and build strength by reinvesting in your own backyard, your neighbor's backyard, and the, and the, and the, the coalition of the willing that you have there. Do you, you see how that all works? Now, let's say that we, get, we come out of this global bullshit and things go back to kind of sort of the way they were before it and you go back about your honky-dory happy little life and you don't ever really really need those people in hard times well you still have them and you're going to be a happier person with access to more things and you're going to have more value and because you have more value you have more ability to do what to export service and or product and import money and you import money to where your household, which you're now running like a business, and you're running like a business that is interoperable with multiple other community businesses. If you cannot answer this question, and if you're not building a community based on this concept where everybody in the community understands the value that they bring, and it's always seeking to increase that value, you are not going to build a community like you want to build. You're not going to build a stable community. You're not going to build a community that has staying power. Now, there are some communities out there, some groups in, that have been put together, sort of haphazardly, that work. They didn't come at it with this philosophy, but I'm going to tell you what would happen. If you said you got this group and said, well, who's part of this community? First of all, anybody in it probably knows everybody in it that's really in it. There might be some peripheral people that think they're in it, and they're not. That happens all the time. But like the core, the real people in it, You're going to go up to any single person in that community. You're going to say, who's in it? And I know they probably don't want to tell you, but if they were willing to tell you, they'd say, Bill, Tom, Fred, you know, Mary, Sue, Nicole, whatever, right? And then you would say, well, what value does Bill bring to your community? And they will spit out a freaking answer. Bill might not even realize how valuable this community, but the community knows. And then it works. So if it works when it's done unconsciously, because it naturally flows, We have the, the innate genetic predisposition to build and maintain and grow relationships when those relationships offer mutual value. That is how every tribe, civilization, town, community that started from nothing formed. And then the bureaucrats take over, it gets too big, and it all gets screwed up. 
But these tight-knit groups always come from Bill does this, Tom does this, Sherry does that, Nicole can do this. And that doesn't mean that when somebody gets old or tired and can't do as much anymore that we discard them. No, the fact that they invested in it makes them worthy of being cared for as they age. This is how I grew up in Pennsylvania. This is why as a kid, my grandmother at harvest time in the garden, when we had more than she could bear to can, would pack up bags, write family names on them, and I'd go take them and give them away. And you know what they all went to? They all went to people that were such senior citizens and didn't have kids living at home anymore that they had no time, no ability, no capability to produce their own food. And so they were kind of living on that fixed income. And my grandmother knew that two bags of, of you know, maybe old Lady Cashmere couldn't grow a garden anymore. But if I brought her two bags of food, she could still can it. And that would help her get through winter. And nobody told my grandmother that that's how this was supposed to work. But it worked naturally. So my point to you is, if you focus on it, if you grow it and you develop it, there is no downside to increasing your value every day just a little bit. And if you increase your value to others by 1% a week and compound that over a decade, the results are phenomenal. And if you go at the idea of building community based on this philosophy, since it works naturally all by itself, imagine how powerful it is when you intend it, when you will it, and when you commit to it, and when others that are part of it do the same. With that, hope you guys enjoyed this week of Miyagi Mornings. I will catch up with you next week with another four videos next week. And remember, you can get all of these segments, the Miyagi Morning segments, on Friday mornings. We drop the recap podcast episode audio only. And those of you that have just found me and are like, oh, this guy's a podcaster, this is his podcast, this is not my podcast, This is a short video. I do uh, four new podcasts a week and one that's a recap of these episodes. And they are available in audio format in all of the syndication services. You can find me just by searching for The Survival Podcast. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode of the Miyagi Morning Recap. Remember, I do Miyagi Mornings to create short and shareable content for your friends and family who may not be up to listening to an entire podcast. Each of these segments from today's show is only five to eight minutes long and can be shared as both YouTube or Odyssey videos. Links to the video files for each segment are in today's show notes. If you want to submit a question for Miyagi Mornings, just email jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com with Miyagi Mornings in the subject line. All subjects other than politics are welcome for this special series. And please remember, you can always support the Survival Podcast by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com or becoming a member of the Members Support Brigade.